This is long overdue. I am so excited to share that Own Your Choices, Own Your Life will finally be on YouTube. As of September 5th, episodes will be available at the link in the show notes or search Marsha Van Weinsberg on YouTube. With over 450 episodes available, I invite you to like, subscribe, and watch in video format and listen to our episodes released three times a week. Please help me celebrate this. I am so grateful for your continued support, tags, shares, and reviews. Welcome to the Own Your Choices, Own Your Life podcast. I am your host, Marsha Van Weinsberg. I'm a business coach, speaker, and author of the best-selling book, When She Stopped Asking Why. On this podcast, we will use the tips tools and strategies used by myself and our speakers to break through and overcome the challenges in our lives. When we take radical responsibility of our choices, create boundaries, grow our courage and practice self-care and letting go of what isn't ours to control, we can completely change our stories. When we take full ownership of our stories, we take back our personal power and this allows us to impact, serve and support others by showing them that they are not alone and helping them find freedom from their stories. When you own your choices, you truly own your life. Let's dive in. Welcome back to the show. Today we are having an incredible conversation with Steve Prada. Steve is the leadership team coach whose passion is to help emerging privately owned businesses to grow, thrive, and increase their value. And this is so incredibly important right now. He pursues it by simplifying and teaching management and strategy concepts used by large companies and elite consulting firms. His new book called Pinnacle, Five Principles That Take Your Business to the Top of the Mountain, which became an instant bestseller upon its release in May, 2022. We dive into all things business in this episode, and we talk all about the steps, what the principles are, how to create change, how to really increase the profit in your business. And this might seem like a different episode compared to some of the things that we talk about in the show, but deep down, I love learning more and more about business. And Steve shares his story, how his family, they uprooted to move to the U.S. in order to build and create the life for his family that he knew was possible. This is such an incredible episode, and I know you're going to love it. Hello, Steve. Welcome to the show today. Hey, Marsha. Great to be here. I'm looking forward to this conversation as we just kind of compare last names and practice pronunciation. So I am just, I'm thrilled to have you here. Where are you from? I am, uh, well, you know, we moved here 10 years ago uh, to Virginia and uh, people ask me this a lot. And sometimes I get irritated by it because I really don't want to talk about it that much because it's not the topic of the conversation. I don't want them to focus on that. No. So I'm, I live in Richmond, Virginia. And, um, you know, here we have the West End, which is like the, where the middle class is, the suburban part of, of Richmond. So people are always talking about the West End of Richmond. And when people ask me this question, where I'm from, I like to tell them I'm from the far east end of Richmond. And then they look at me like deer in the headlights and I tell them Budapest, Hungary. That's the far east end of Richmond. So that's where I'm from originally. And uh, we moved here uh, 10 years ago, uh, right about uh, this time, actually. 
Oh, really? And can I, we won't spend a lot of time there, but I do just want to ask you, like, was it a fairly quick decision to uproot and move your family? Actually, it was uh, funny. Well, it wasn't, it wasn't. So my wife and I, we both uh, traveled and worked in different countries all over Europe. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and therefore we had a bit of an international outlook and we, we thought that, uh, you know, uh, when we got married in uh, in uh, 2000, everything looked great. Hungary was about to join the EU, and there was a lot of optimism about how um, Hungary is going to be this great place on a continuing basis, where people can uh, then can you know can build businesses, and we are going to increase living standards and education, and and people going to be open to to each other. Uh, so we were optimistic about it, but we always had it in the back of our mind that should things not work out the way that we would imagine or like them to, to work out, then we always had an escape route because we had this international background and not background, but kind mm-hmm. of orientation and education and stuff like that. So, but then we made the decision really quickly because suddenly it dawned on us in 2011 when the currency crisis was happening in Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was a new government and they were start, starting closing things down. And we suddenly had this, there was a tipping point where we felt things are not looking great. Um, the country may be not going to the direction that we would love it to go. And then Europe is having all these problems with immigration and with, uh, you know, with the tension in the EU and the demographic um, profile of Europe was, was really uh, uh, challenging. Mm-hmm. And we thought maybe maybe we can make a change, and and then we looked uh, at different things. I mean, my second language is English. I used to work for in London for several years, and and you know studied abroad. And, and my wife also speaks uh, languages. So I thought that if I want to start a business somewhere else, it would have to be in an English speaking country. Mm-hmm. So we did, uh, you know, looked around, we looked at Australia, uh, we looked at Canada, we looked at US, and we, we found the US to be the easiest place to go. And uh, and basically, my, my vision at the time was to set up a business here and, and essentially do the same thing that made my business successful in Hungary, do it in the US. And I was uh, naive to think that it would actually work. So, uh, so, so that's how we, and then we made that quick decision. I remember the Eurozone crisis broke in August and we still had the scar tissue from the financial crisis when our business really struggled. And so we're not going to go again through this again a third time. Who knows what the next one is going to be? So let's let's look at options. And we figured it out pretty quick that the U.S. would be and and we got uh, on, on it. And within nine months, we were here. So awesome. I guess it was fair click. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. As you share that tipping point, and it's almost like I can hear having this plan B of, you know, always in the back of your head that if this isn't going to work, we have an option over here. Mm-hmm. Now, you're a leadership coach and author. Is Are those things that have been kind of a staple for you in your life as you've created your business? Uh, the option B? Yeah, like having that option. And not it's not that it's a plan B that I fall back on it, but it's just being aware that there's different options available. Well, it's a, it's a super interesting question. Um 
Arnold Schwarzenegger has a video on YouTube where he talks about uh, the idea that you should not have an op- a plan B because mm-hmm. it allows you to not do the hard things. Right. So, uh, so in a way, we we didn't really have a plan B, um, and when we moved here, it wasn't so much a, of a plan B. It was, it was so much. It was more about changing plan. <laughs> I mm-hmm. don't know. I don't know how to say that. Um, so what we said to each other, my wife and I, when we moved over here, we said that basically, you know, we tried to be positive and said we are destined to success. And and why? Because we have no other choice just to be successful that. here. Yeah. So it it was not so much a plan B kind of thing. It was more about let's try and let's try to make this a success. And, you know, we would have loved to stay in Hungary and be successful in Hungary. but. Uh, we had to face the fact and the future that it was not uh, bright. And, and actually, you know, as things worked out, or as, as things happened in the last 12 years or 10 years, it basically um, vindicated our decision, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, we basically had to face it. Okay, we have to go with it and have to make this step. I was 45 at the time and and um, okay, uh, maybe maybe that's the last uh, moment in time we can do this. And if things are, are going to be much better than we thought it would, we can still move back uh, five years later, but we would not be able to leave five years later. So it was kind of this uh, speculation that that it's now or never. Yeah, no, I appreciate exactly what you're saying. And that is where I was leaning to it is this piece of, you know, never having a plan B. And I think it's, I think it's not a plan B, but it's also being able to pivot in the moment and, and know, yeah. yeah. And know that, okay. So a lot of times like we'll make a decision in our business and whatever that's going to look like. And we think it's going to look like this and it's going to be this next step and this next step. And then all of a sudden in comes, Ooh, that's not the next step. I actually think this is going to be it. And that wasn't on the radar when I started, but that's actually where I'm supposed to be going. Yes. Mm-hmm. It was a pivot. You're right. It's not, it wasn't a plan B. Yeah. Uh, but it, on the other hand, I think it, it is important to, to look at the downside, to protect your downside. So to have options, um, if, so if you take a wager and it doesn't work out, then you have to have some kind of a reserve, some mm-hmm. kind of a escape, hatch it's not a plan b really but it it helps you uh fight another day basically as an entrepreneur it does and it's interesting because it makes me think that like as an entrepreneur um it, do you have this knowing that no matter which plan it is like you're going to find your way back on your feet anyways like that's just who you are do you have that knowing that that's because not everybody has that so i just kind of want to dive into that a little bit yeah no absolutely i mean in fact, sometimes I think that I need to uh, be in a corner to be able to uh, rejuvenate myself. So mm-hmm. I have to, have to put myself into situations. And I believe that successful entrepreneurs uh, and the way they are different from others is they are willing to endure pain. They're willing to put themselves in painful situations where they will be forced to come up with the goods. Whereas uh, people who are mediocre, they are so fearful of these situations that they will never put themselves to the point where they would have to do something outside of their comfort zone. So uh, yeah, I'm I'm kind kind of comfortable uh, in being in, uh, being uncomfortable because I know that uh, whenever that happens, you know, it gets my juices flowing, and then I come out better. 
mm-hmm. on the other side. It's it's a painful process, but it's it's a worse model. It it is a painful process, but it's one that like it's the only thing I've ever known. People say that to me all the time. Like that's you know you don't have a pension, you don't have that. Where I'm like I have been an entrepreneur my entire life. That's what I know. And to some people, it sounds absolutely crazy. And to others, like when I look at a nine to five punch the clock, that looks crazy. So we all have our own, we all have our own way of how we look at things and what that is meant to be. So have you always been an entrepreneur then? Uh, Emotionally, yes, Mm -hmm. but um, (laughs) practically not. And, uh, you know, when I was growing up, my grandfather, I spent a lot of time with my paternal grandfather, and he 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 was not a, he was an entrepreneurial person, but he was not really an entrepreneur. But his father, my great-grandfather, was a great entrepreneur in pre-war Budapest. He built a very successful bakery chain. And my grandfather inherited it and then uh, the communists uh, nationalized it. So he 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 was blacklisted, he couldn't get a job, he didn't have a, a good education either. So he but he was a very good salesperson. So he was kind of an entrepreneurial salesperson. He he made good money, he had a good lifestyle. Uh, my parents are professionals, and uh, but I, I I had this, I was fascinated by this story, and I felt like I want to be, I want to become an entrepreneur. Um and uh, and after high school, I had a, a, a business idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I was about to, uh, I had actually two two business ideas. And then I got this scholarship in the Netherlands, actually. Uh, so I went to the Netherlands and then uh, I got, uh, that's another story, but basically I got a job in London. Uh, basically, actually, kind of an entrepreneurial story as well. But uh, so I, I then went to London for, for three years and I got uh, hired by a multilateral bank for a big salary and another bank and I was on this management program. So basically for for 15 years, I was in this golden cage. Um, I was in this high paying job and it was really, uh, there was this high uh, barrier to leaving. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then eventually I got fired when I was 35 years old and, and I was so happy actually because the next day I started my own business and finally I could do what I always wanted to do. Wow. There was no more uh, this uh, this opportunity cost that I had to consider and, uh, and you know, the rest is history. The rest is history. That's awesome. That's great for sharing. Thank you for sharing that. As I'm looking at, I do want to dive into some of the principles in your book. I'm like looking at your screen and I can see what I just love that. That's such a, that's such a great picture. Tell us about your book and we're going to dive into like where the idea came for it. So, uh, so the book Pinnacle, um, five principles that take your business to the top of the mountain. And what it is, it's a framework for uh, for for a leadership team to take their business to the next level, to to figure out their vision, their strategy, uh, their their culture, their execution cadence, and uh, their, their playbooks, and to make a business very profitable. That's kind of the the framework. Uh, where did it come from? So I was for uh, several years. Um, I was an implementer of another operating business operating system called EOS, mm-hmm. and I and that's a great system and it's been around for twenty years now, and I always felt that the challenge with EOS was that it was a two year journey. So so a small company would get on the EOS. It was very simple. 
And within two years, you could completely nail it. And uh, then that was it. You know, the idea was that you run on EOS forever. But actually, the companies who, who really successfully implemented the EOS, they wanted to do more. They want to get to the next level. Um, and uh, But but we, we didn't have any more tools uh, available to teach them. So I always had this in my mind that I'm going to create EOS 2.0, kind mm-hmm. of what's the next level. And then what happened was EOS turned themselves into a franchise. Um, and I didn't want to be a quasi-employee of any organization. I, you know, I didn't want to give up my my identity, my website, and all that stuff. So, okay, so I left and uh, I joined this other organization called Pinnacle. And uh, they didn't have their own book. And I thought, well, maybe that's my opportunity to, to write that book. Um, they had the five principles. So I said, okay, what are these five principles? So I came up with three practices for each of these five principles. And I teamed up with the founder of, uh, of Pinnacle Business Guides, Gregor Cleary, and we came out with this book a couple of months ago. Um, and, and that's basically the story. And that is, this system is kind of EO, like EOS in the sense that it, it gives you a complete framework to take the business to the next level. But there are two important differences. One is that this is a completely customizable uh, uh, system because every company is unique. You know, one size fits all, fits no one. Uh, every company is unique and you need a system that is customizable to where you are on your journey. So that, that is the first difference. The second difference, this is a scalable system. So uh, the coaches who teach Pinnacle they are growing together with their clients. So they, we are constantly reading all the new books that come out, new concepts. We, we synthesize them down, we curate them, and we been, bring those concepts to our clients at the right time, at the right tool that they need at that point in time. So the, the more successful coaches are going to continue to grow with their clients. If the client goes from 5 million to 50 million to 150 million, they need different levels tools. They master the one they, they learn and they have to get uh, to learn a higher level of strategy making. They have to create a higher level of uh, profitability uh, process. You, know, you have to benchmark themselves to the best in their industry. They need to differentiate themselves so they become a category of one in their industry. So that's kind of the philosophy of Pinnacle. So it's customizable and it's scalable. Nice. Um, I like that. Thank you so much for explaining that. And as you talk about the five um, principles, could you just tell the listeners briefly what each of those principles are? Yeah. So the five principles are five P's. So the first one is people. So we always start with people. And Jim Collins talks about people first. Mm-hmm. Um, because the idea is that if you got the right people into your organization, they're going to figure out figure it out for you. Yes. So that's the most important. Get the right people that fit your culture, uh, who can really execute uh, uh, consistently um, in, in their, their, their functions. Uh, they, they can deliver on their outcomes. If you got these people, then you have to align them around a powerful purpose. So that's where visioning and strategy comes in. So the idea is, uh, you you asked about the vision. So in my mind, the vision has uh, uh, three different parts. So there is, think of it as a mountain, 
there there is the moon you know the moon it's like the the moon at night which shines over the mountain so so you, you, the first element of your vision is your purpose it's your why uh, why you're here why you're running this business what is this idea that is going to galvanize your people so that they're going to be excited to deliver for your business so example you know tesla it's it's about transitioning um, the earth on sustainable energy. So this is a really big idea that's not going to be achieved anytime soon, but it's going to be around for the next 50 to 100 years trying to get there. So that's the first piece to buy the moon mm-hmm. over the mountain. The second piece of the vision is what we call the pinnacle. So it's the top of the mountain and it's a long-term, very specific goal. So for example, for Tesla again, uh, their pinnacle is they want to double the uh, the distance that uh, a fully charged battery is going to take the car on within five years. So that's their pinnacle. And when they get there, they're going to have another pinnacle. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then below the pinnacle, you have your, uh, we call them the medium term milestones. So what are you going to hit along the way? What are going to be your milestones? Uh, it could be, uh, you know, developing the, the design for the battery. It could be uh, building the supply chain for the battery. It's, uh, it's figuring out the, the marketing of it uh, and so on. And the manufacturing process. So th- these are the parts of the vision. So you have the why of the pinnacle, medium milestone, medium term milestones. And when you know what these milestones are, then, okay, then you figure out your strategy so how are you going to get to these milestones? How are you going to position yourself and how are you going to differentiate yourself? Uh, what is going to be your uh, simplified strategy that everyone can operationalize in the business? So that's kind of the, the, the purpose piece. Uh, and then you, how do you align everyone around it? And then the next one, the third piece is the playbooks. So how do you then systemize your business so that uh, you have uh, you define and ingrain the best way of doing things and how do you optimize it over time? And then the fourth P is performance. So how do you make sure everyone is performing at the high, at a consistently high level? And if you do people, purpose, playbooks, and performance well, then profit is going to be a byproduct. But then we also take this to the next level because we look at, okay, so what does it mean uh, profitable in our industry? Who are, you know, what is the profitable level of the elite top 15% of our industry? And how do we engineer our, engineer our business to get there? And then how do we sustain it over time? Mm. So that's kind of the five Ps. And these are the practices that, that get you to uh, implement these principles and it's like a concentric circle. So you can implement it at the basic level and then you you can make it uh, even more and more powerful over time. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for that breakdown. And it just made me think of how many businesses, you know, will focus on the profitability and what is there or not there, but not actually break down all of the other pieces that lead up to that so that the profitability is like the end result not the place to start. Like if it's not working, you need to figure out where, but to put a hundred percent of the focus on that, as you're saying, if you work on the other pieces, the profitability is there. Yes, that's mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, I think for me, the, the big, um, the big why, um, why I love doing this and why I'm so excited about it is because 
I looked at these statistics a couple of years ago. So there are 1.7 million small to medium-sized companies in the U.S. alone. So 1.7 million companies with 10 to 250 employees. And uh, the average lifespan of these companies is eight and a half years. So it means that every year, about 185,000 of these companies disappear. And I believe that um, 99% of these companies could be saved if people had a clear uh, idea on how to actually build the business rather than just to understand the specific discipline that they are in. Uh, if they had this complete picture of the pinnacle principles, they followed these pinnacle principles, then virtually these companies could not fail because how can a company uh, not succeed that has uh, great people who are fit the culture and who uh, who can uh, execute on their function, who have a great purpose, vision, and strategy, and they are all aligned around it, that have got their uh, important uh, playbooks defined and and optimized over time, and they are all held to a high standard of performing at a high level, mm-hmm. um, and they have elite level profitability, it's basically impossible to fail. So I'm very passionate about this system because I think that all those companies could be saved. And I actually did the math. If those companies would not go out of business, then the US would uh, actually add another 4% to the GDP, to its GDP growth every year. Actually, there would be a one-time 20, over 20% bump, and then every year a 4% increase. So if we are growing at 3%, we'll be growing at 7%, we could eclipse China just by making sure that our small businesses know how to run themselves. Wow. Wow. You know what? I love this conversation and what a lot of people might not know. Like I'm definitely all about the mindset piece, the owning your choices, creating that change. I love talking business. Like I do. I love understanding and learning more. And one of the things that you said there, like every year, 185,000 businesses dissolve or stop in the U.S., yeah. What was that number like over the last couple of years with COVID? How has that been? And how could some of these principles, I'm just curious, yeah. how could some of these principles have made a difference? We've also got people who've started businesses now. Yes. So I don't have the uh, the statistics up to date. I mean, it's yeah. it's not uh, it's not something that people update the numbers every, every quarter and, and I can track this very accurately. Yeah. So this is more of a long-term trend. Yeah. Uh, but I, I do think that even during COVID, a lot of businesses actually performed better because mm-hmm. it was an opportunity for them. A lot of businesses suffered. But the idea is that when you're an entrepreneurial business, then you pivot, as we talked uh, before. You know, It's all about pivoting. And if you have the right people who have the right uh, motivations and they are competent and they fit your culture, they're going to work together and figure it out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and that's the entrepreneurial process. We're talking about we're not talking about Fortune rank companies. We're talking about yep. companies ten to two hundred fifty people. They have the agility. They have the flexibility. Um, they just have to pivot and trial and error and uh, and come up with the uh, the solution. There are always opportunities, mm-hmm. even during COVID, uh, during recessions. There are opportunities. And um, and I, I think uh, these companies, obviously, when there is a big shock, it's going to be 
tougher. It, and if you want to start when you're already in trouble, it's too late. So you have to prepare for this. You have to build a leadership team. It's going to take you a couple of years to put a good team together to replace some of the weak uh, chains in the weak um, links in your chain. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you do that, then you will be in a really good position to not, you know, you not have to uh, disappear even if yeah. there's a recession. Yeah, no, I thank you for sharing that. I realize it's not a direct number. I was just curious because I think that times like that um, amplify where there are gaps, where there are holes, where there are challenges, like it just amplifies it. And it's like the magnifying glass is there and it's like, oh crap, you know what? I've actually not really put a lot of attention on these pieces mm-hmm. and now they're a bigger issue. I mean, we saw we saw businesses in our area pivot so fast, so beautifully, and like they just did an incredible job. And then because of that, a lot of people supported those, like would go out of their way. It wasn't necessarily about buying for convenience. It was like, no, I'm going to go out and support some of those businesses. And yeah, it's an extra 20 minute drive. And I don't care because I want to support them because I see what they're doing. So I could see a lot of things like that happening that I just, I found really interesting. And again, like some people pivoted beautifully. They pivoted so incredibly well. I I mean, I couldn't believe it. Every year I tally the financial results of my clients and 2020 was by far the most successful. Wow. So my clients grew their revenues by 27% on average and their profits by over 200% in 270% or something crazy like that. I couldn't even publish it because it didn't look credible. Yep. But it, it was uh, it was amazing. Now, I think probably uh, the, the government stimulus helped that as well. Mm-hmm. But uh, but I, you know I have a lot of clients who are in e-commerce. I mean they definitely are greatly profited from it. Consulting, other professional services, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, a lot of companies. And then in the you know blue color sectors, you know construction, those were oh. uh, essential services. So they kept going for that reason. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was and fascinating. Then, it was just fascinating well, to see. Yeah, it, it was. Um, I want to tap into and support people who are listening and I want to get to your background expertise on helping somebody to discover their vision and then aligning their business around it. Mm -hmm. What does that look like? Where would they start? How, like, what kind of things could you give them to support people in this process? So, um, so vision you know, has the different parts, uh, I would definitely start about the why. So the why is this idea that uh, every business has to have some kind of a social um, benefit that they are providing. So businesses are not about, of course, the business owner starts the business in many cases because they want to make money and that's totally normal. Mm -hmm. But for the business itself, to be a viable entity for the long term, it has to have a why that is beyond that because the business doesn't care about money. The business is, is a concept, right? It's, it's an entity. It's a concept. Um, for it to really have a viable future, it has to deliver something for which people are willing to pay. Mm-hmm. And the way to do this is, uh, and, and I think it's an opportunity 
for for the business owner to facilitate the conversation about what is what are you really in the business of doing and why are we doing this um and if you can articulate that then it really helps to to attract the right people and to get them excited about uh, being part of the business and then to bring all their emotional energies and all their intellectual ide- all their ideas um, and solutions to the business, not just to work for the paycheck, but they it's gonna be they, they are gonna be on a mission. And mm-hmm. Jeff Bezos calls this concept the idea that you want missionaries rather than mercenaries in your business. So mm-hmm. if you don't have a vibe for your business, then you're gonna attract the mercenaries who are only there for a paycheck and you know, this is a job, they do it nine to five, and they do what you tell them to do. Uh, but when you have missionaries in your business, then they're going to be part of that mission and they want to make that mission successful. Their identity is going to be invested in making this successful and they're going to come up with ideas how to do things better. Uh, they're going to you know, come early, stay late. Um, I think there is a, a quote I included in my book from Elon Musk, and I'm going to paraphrase it, but it, it goes something like that. Um, if you have, you know, if you have great purpose, then people are going to uh, work really hard for you. Because it's it's a great purpose. It's easy to get people to work hard for you. If you don't have it, then it's going to be a grind. I really paraphrase it. It's, oh, it's all good. It's all good. <laughs> so that's that's the first one, mm-hmm. and then uh, then the pinnacle is about. Uh, coming up with a really clear, tangible, long-term goal that is going to make people uh, focus on what's really important. And, um, you know, and, and typically it's something measurable. Mm-hmm. So, for example, uh, one of my clients, um, they have this goal, but that by 2040, they want to have converted a million houses to net zero. They are in the business of, uh, of um, energy efficiency mm-hmm. and they came up with this idea and now they are building the business that is converting houses right now they're doing HVAC they're doing heat pumps they're doing uh, solar cells all that stuff insulation but they want to actually take a house and turn it to net zero and then they want to do it a million times so that's the big uh, idea and people absolutely love it in the company that they are uh, working for such a company that's going to make a huge difference. Absolutely. So that's that's their pinnacle. That's the top of the mountain. And then you break it down. Okay, so to get to a million houses by 2040, so what do we have to do in the next three to five years in order to position ourselves? And they have to figure out an efficient process to convert these houses. They have to uh, make sure that they got the technology, they got the processes for that, the playbooks. Uh, they have to get the word out. So they have to be a thought leader in the space and they have to produce, um, uh, get the visibility um, and uh, they have to tap into some grants. So they have their milestones figured out. That's the tangible part of vision they have to work on. And then you can break this down. Okay, the next 12 months, next year, what are the, how far are we going to get on these milestones? And then you can create a really specific plan um, and, and then you execute that plan. And yeah, so that's, that's the vision. And then the alignment piece is really, really critical. And uh, in the book, I, I kind of, we, we um, describe this alignment. It's, think about a spaceship 
which has huge propeller rockets. And one of the rockets is reinforcement and the other one is integration. So the two rockets to propel the alignment are reinforcement and integration. So what that means is that, you know, it's not enough to come up with the vision and the strategy. You really have to make sure that everyone understands it. So you have to reinforce it. Mm-hmm. So at least every quarter, or maybe even more frequently, you want to make sure that you communicate to your whole team and you walk them through that this is our why, this is why we are here, and this is our pinnacle, this is our long-term goal, the 1 million net zero homes. And, and here are our milestones that you have to hit, and this is the annual growth plan that is going to help us move at least one-third uh, down the road to achieving our milestones. And here are our quarterly rocks that we're going to have to hit this quarter in order to be on on track with our annual plan. And then here are the weekly metrics. So you you want to reinforce that. That's reinforcement. The other rocket on this spaceship is integration. So you want to integrate this vision into the life of the company by uh, weaving it through every policy and strategy and tactic and even the name of your products and services going to include the ideas of the integration and even your people are you going to give your people a name uh you know it could be an you know net zero designers in the case of this company and uh, and and therefore you're going to remind your people that this is your strategy this is your brand this is what you're going after so you want to integrate your vision and strategy um, and you want to reinforce it and this is how you align everyone around it Thank you for breaking it down the way that you did, because I just, I think that that simplifies it so much and I, extremely, extremely helpful. And it's interesting because a lot of these principles, as you explain them, and I think you mentioned earlier that it's really primarily for companies that have like 10 to 20 or 10 to 30 employees. 10 to, 10 to 200, 250 to 200. employees. So that's the, you know, the, the, this category, I think the SBA has this category small to medium size, SMB, whatever they call it, 10 to 250 employees. And so what if you have somebody who is in the like one to, well, I say one to five employees, Mm -hmm. but they have that vision of like growing and doing. And it's also challenging in the early stage. I know that in the last two years, I have brought in more help in my business. And it's always hard when you're doing that at the beginning. It's like, wait, I I have to wait until I make X amount of dollars before I, and I think it's a real critical mistake. A lot of, a lot of entrepreneurs make that I have to wait till I make X amount of dollars to justify getting help with that. But we're not meant to wear 30 hats at the same time, because then we don't even get closer to that vision. So I would love just your take or thought on that when we're dealing with companies and businesses that are like maybe below five employees. Yeah. Well, that's, that's a huge, uh, huge challenge. There are multiple facets to this, mm-hmm. uh, in my opinion. One is that uh, the first thing that any small business startup has to do is to find this message to market match, you know, make, make sure that you got the right product market match. So you have the right product that you can sell at a profit on a sustainable basis. That's the first thing. And uh, a lot of small businesses, they start out by, you know, 
in the service. You're trying to provide the service to whoever is willing to pay for it. Yep. So you're not really, you don't really have a product. You have, you are basically a service provider, mm-hmm. and it's all you. And every, you know, every engagement is different, and you have to figure it out. And then you're at that stage. It's it's hard to get help because what kind of help can you get? Maybe you can have administrative help. But because your processes are every client is different, every engagement is different, you don't have repeatability in your business. So to teach someone to do unrepeatable things, you have to hire a really smart person mm-hmm. who you probably can't afford to hire. So it becomes a really big challenge. So I think the first one is, uh, the first thing to do is to find something that's repeatable. Mm-hmm. So find a product that you can, um standardize and repeat and try not to be all things to all people now the good thing for a small company is that you can afford to be super niche because you don't need uh, you know your market can be really really small you can still uh, have plenty of room to grow in that market so find your niche and find something that's repeatable and then you have a repeatable thing then you can start thinking about okay can i bring someone on uh, who we, whom I can teach that repeatable process, we call it a playbook, and then they can do it for us um, in a way that I'm going to make a profit on it. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that's the first hurdle. And to bring the first person on is the most challenging mm-hmm. because that is the first person is going to be the biggest chunk of your revenue mm-hmm. going to something other than your own overhead and and your um, and your own expenses and. And the other hurdle is that, you know, we all have um, proportionately a big overhead when you're, you're a startup company. We have little revenue, but we have a lot of costs, right? Because mm-hmm. if we had a, cho- a job beforehand and we have to replace our salary, and it's, it's basically all overhead and there's nothing to play with. So it's going to be really hard to bring the first person in because you have to make a big profit to essentially finance that person. Mm-hmm. Um, but the good news is if you got the right person, and sometimes you have to churn through many people, your, your startup business, so you're not that attractive. So it, it has to be a combination of a good person who you can attract and you can pay and can keep them on the payroll, create some stability for them. So that's going to be the hardest one. The second is going to be much easier, and then it's going to be easier from there. Every person is going to be easier. Mm-hmm. So I don't know uh, how you know it, it's there's no uh, silver bullet there. I don't think. No. What I can say is that at that stage, I think the vision is more about personal motivation than actually coming up for something that you're gonna get even remotely close to, because mm-hmm. there are so many uncertainties for a small company and you're going to have to pivot most likely several times before you get to some level of, of growth and sustainability. So it doesn't really matter what your really long-term vision for the company is. I think what matters is what is your long-term vision for yourself. So uh, for yourself as a business owner, what, what is the ideal life that you want to get to over time? So do you want to be an executive uh, who runs a big company or you want to be um you know, you want to be maybe a, a, a coach, an author who wants to be a thought leader, but you don't really want to manage a lot of people. You want to create a high uh, ticket service that 
allows you to have a really good lifestyle, let's say for retirement, without the headache of, of having a team um, to manage. Mm-hmm. Or you really want to scale a business and exit and, and do something completely different. Um, that's that's also legit. But then just be, be clear on what that is, because then you have to build the business around your ultimate objective. Mm. Thank you for all of that. Honestly, that was, um, there was a lot of nuggets in there and I just wanted that to land and speak for, I know that there's a lot of, um, early stage entrepreneurs that listen, and that is a piece that it comes up often in questions. It's like, but how do I get to that space? And I found it really interesting, like, especially in some of my earlier business ventures, I surrounded myself with people who were very much like me. And that's not always the best thing to do because we think, we all think the same, which means we don't catch the problems. We don't catch the gaps. And I've learned over the years, just through my own reading and like work and et cetera. Like I definitely am more of a visionary. There's no question. I have the ideas I have the So I work hard to surround myself with integrators, people who see the gaps and see the things and put those things in place. I, and my parents, I mean, my parents started their business in um, a garage. It's like literally started it in a garage and it's grown to like a, a very, very big business, but it started in a garage. And I think back to, you know, I don't know if my dad had any idea what he was growing at that time, but it's, you, you also, I mean, he also, I mean, long story short, but he also had multiple businesses that didn't work. But the vision of what that was, and then the execution and putting things in place, you can start small. And if you stay that course and put those principles into place, that you can grow your business too. Yeah, I think the most important is try to come up with some kind of productize your business. So come up with a couple of uh, repeatable services, perhaps. So my business was in. Investment banking, mergers yeah. and acquisitions. Mm-hmm. And uh, what I came up with was, uh, you know, initially we did all sorts of things, management buyouts and capital raising and and the trade uh, sales and, and private sales, all the things. And then there was a point where we realized that we had to get really good at something rather than trying to be average in everything. Yes. And uh, we found a niche where we felt like, there was more demand that we could tap into. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a watershed because then we could create uh, you know, the, the execution piece. We had an information memorandum that was very similar for every engagement. There was a financial modeling that was similar for every engagement. The way we um, marketed the businesses was a process. Mm-hmm. And as soon as we documented these processes, it could then be sliced up. So if I brought on a junior employee, I could just teach them one small part of the process and they could master it fairly quickly and they could execute on it in a repeatable fashion. And as they grew in the business, they could take bigger and bigger part and handle more of that process or more of these elements. Um, And that allowed us to scale. Uh, Whereas before, you know, I had to, I was the brain, trust for all the idea or the engagements and every client wanted to work with me and I had to solve all the problems and it was impossible to scale. Mm-hmm. So it was really important to, to say, say no to a lot of different things that we could have done, 
-hmm. It was not scalable. So my rule became, uh, I only took engagements that, uh, that my team could do without me. If I if they needed me, it was uh, not an engagement for, for my company. Maybe it would have been good for me as a consultant, but my number one job was to grow this company. So it had to be uh, executable by, by my team. Oh, I love That's that explanation. Yeah. Thank you for that. I love that explanation. I had a mentor once say to me that, be very mindful and keep asking the questions that when you're building your business, like, am I, am I actually creating a job or am I building a business? And that's that piece of it is that if there's nothing scalable in there, then you're really creating a job and there's nothing wrong with that. But if you have the vision to create something more then again, you have to get into something that is repeatable. That's right. Yeah. Thank you so much for that explanation. Honestly, this has been a very, I like a very interesting and different conversation, but I love it because I think it's really important, especially right now, as so many people, there's a lot of people who are reinventing themselves. And the one thing that I, I took out of your message, there is no age limit where we can reinvent ourselves. There is no, like it's, that is such a myth and misconception that happens a lot that I I have to have my life figured out by the time I'm 30. Or by the time I'm 35, it has to be done and figured out. And it's like, no, you can pivot multiple times through as as I did, as you have in our careers, you can do it multiple times. Yeah. I mean, uh, most people know the story about uh, McDonald's and uh, and Ray Kroc that he basically uh, discovered this opportunity when he was 53 years old. He was this uh, mixer, uh, this uh, shake mixer, whatever, uh, salesperson, and he figured out, he found this restaurant and started a business, 53. I have a friend whose father started an accounting firm when he was 65 years old, and he uh, actually lived until 92, and his son took it over. Uh, he was a late child. He was uh, 40 years younger than his, his father, but... Mm-hmm. You know, because he started late, uh, actually, he could catch up and he could take this business over from him. And and he ran it successfully into his late 80s, uh, the wow. founder. Um, and, and and actually, it's sometimes good to have this kind of challenge because it, it keeps you young. It's keeping you uh, fresh. You can't, again, it's putting yourself in an uncomfortable situation. But uh, we need to be in uncomfortable situations to be able, you know, to have to mobilize our resources and keep uh, ourselves fresh. Um, mm-hmm. We have to challenge ourselves and starting a business is, is the ultimate challenge. And right there, that's, that's a great way to end it. I love that. Um, I want to ask people where they can connect, follow you and find you the easiest place. I'll have everything yes. in your show notes. Yes. Uh, the easiest place is stevepreda.com. Mm-hmm. So that's Steve, uh, P-R-E-D-A. Uh, so don't confuse me with the fashion brand. So P-R-E for Eleanor, uh, uh, December Andrew, Preda.com. Uh, and you can download the summaries of my books. You can download uh, Pinnacle Journey Assessment. So you can actually check where you are on this climb at, up the mountain. Great. Um, and uh, obviously you can go on Amazon. You can check my books out uh, there as well. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for sharing everything that you did. There was so much value there. I have one more question for you, and it is what lesson in life are you most grateful for? Uh, I think um, my inherent optimism. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it 
I do think it's it's kind of a talent to be uh, optimistic and to be positive. I don't know whether it's uh, nature or nurture. Um, so I, I probably was very blessed. I had grandparents who were very close to me and were very positive people, and and uh, that rubbed uh, off on me. But I, I do think that optimism really helps because it it gives you this belief that things will work out, and you you know you it gives you the uh, kind of the 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 fearlessness to try things that are people think are risky mm-hmm. um and i'm very i feel very blessed to have them that's beautiful thank you i think that that is a superpower to be honest i think it's i think it's incredibly important trait to have and as soon as you have that eternal optimism, then you also, your perspective is different. You can look at the same situation as someone else and say, I see an opportunity here. But if you're not in that mindset, then you don't see it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Henry Ford, you know, Henry Ford famously said that uh, if you believe you can or you believe you can't, you're right either way. So mm-hmm. it's kind of this idea that uh, so it does, true. does help. It's so true. Thank you so much for this conversation. It's been fantastic. Thank you, Marsha. It was a great uh, opportunity to be on your show. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Own Your Choices, Own Your Life podcast. If you love this episode, please submit a rating and review on iTunes and please share it with someone you think could benefit from hearing this message or this podcast. I love connecting and meeting you. So please screenshot the episode and tag me on social media or Instagram stories at Marsha Van W. And until next time, remember when you own your choices, you truly own your life.